Welcome to The O Podcast, an audio companion to Tufts' oldest publication, The Observer Magazine. This podcast is released alongside each print issue of The Observer. Here, we aim to delve deeper into the topics explored in the articles, consider new perspectives, and uplift voices from the print issue and beyond. This issue dealt with the topic of resonance. Inspired by Isabel Charles's essay, Sweet Sounds of Growing Pains, in the first segment of this episode, our Voices team explores the themes of music and memory and discusses the ways in which music has resonated with them. The print issue also featured a piece on the Index exhibition at the Tufts University Art Gallery. The second segment features the voice of one of the artists and curators, Ajibade Khalil Huffman. Becca Rose and Molly Gold wrote about the legacy of student movements at Tufts and the history of the endowment. Current students and an alum discuss their experiences with organizing, their frustrations with the university, and their hopes for activism on campus. The O Podcast presents Resonance. Music resonates. It has the power to follow us through life long after we finish listening. How does music resonate with you? What role does it play in your life, whether as a creator or consumer? What can music tell you about yourself? Can a song be home? In this month's issue of The Observer, Isabel Charles's essay, Sweet Sounds of Growing Pains, speaks to the power of music as a keeper of memory, as a means to process emotion, as a form of connection. Today, we discuss what music means to us from the playlists that take us back to our childhoods to the way our identities and experiences are reflected in the genres we love. I'm Hannah. I'm Suhasini. And I'm Alexis. Let's get into it. For me, music, I think, is a way for me to work through my emotions and my problems when they arise. I have so many playlists curated that I can just, at any given moment, if I'm feeling a particular kind of way, I can just go to one of my playlists and find a song to provide like a soundtrack for my experiences. And just kind of having that, either lyrics that really speak to how I'm feeling or if it's instrumentals, just having that sort of filmy score to my life, it helps me get into the right headspace and almost kind of solve my problems by stepping back and imagining myself as a character in a song or in a movie or whatever it may be. And then when I go back to that song, years later sometimes I can still remember what it felt like to be listening to it in that moment and it's like the music is there sort of keeping track of how I've grown and changed over time. I think music is quite important to me in that regard and like the emotional sense. Yeah that makes sense to me. I feel like if I listen to a song that I used to listen to when I was 15 I can remember the stoplight that I was at when I was listening to that song with my dad or something like that you know it has that sort of emotional significance that doesn't really seem to be there like while you're listening to it sometimes the first time but when you go back yeah for sure um for me music has a lot to do with just providing something to feel like if you're you have too many thoughts going through your head and you just want to focus on a t- one task and you can just have music like i like to paint and it's really nice to listen to music while you're doing art or even um, when I'm writing, I have playlists I make specifically like to go with the mood of whatever the piece I'm writing is about. And so I tend to um, gravitate towards music that 
has more like meaningful lyrics I feel like and storytelling in the lyrics yeah I totally get your writing playlist <laughs> I have entire character arcs and plot points that have arisen just because I was listening to a particular song mm-hmm. while I was writing and it just went oh my god well like the Lord <laughs> of the Rings soundtrack it it's like it goes along with the story and it's stuff like that like Harry Potter you hear the song and you remember that part of the story and I think it's really cool that people can do stuff like that with music and oh for sure just the association um like Hannah you were saying just with music and memory it being so deeply entrenched in your psyche I always think of the Beatles or Joni Mitchell when I think about long road trips in the car because my parents would always have us listen to that sort of music that's the sort of stuff they listened to growing up it's just so interesting how there's sort of a kinship between generations in that sense I personally don't have good music memories with road trips because I'm not a big country music fan but I Mm. live right outside of Nashville so my parents tend to go put on stations that are country music and Local stations have a lot of a wide range of local artists and popular artists, and it's all you can hear. <laughs> Do you guys have a specific type of music that relates more to home for you? I guess, Hani, you just said you're the Beatles, but Swastini. Music that feels like home, I think for me, would definitely be film soundtracks. I've, okay, okay, this is kind of embarrassing, but. Lately, I've gotten super into these instrumental, nostalgic Barbie movie playlists on YouTube. <laughs> Is this just something so comforting in it, you know? Like, you hear the opening chords of this song that you used to hear in the background of your favorite childhood movie when you were, like, nine years old. And like Hannah was saying, it just, like, touches something in your soul. Like, I can hear a track from, like, a Barbie movie or a Ghibli movie, and I just... I can see myself sitting on like my specific carpet in my room when I was 10 and I'm like, yes. What Barbie what piece feels like? What Barbie movie specifically? Um, the 12 Dunting Princesses has been going oh. around a lot lately. Yes, that's a very good one. <laughs> but just all of them. I mean, the old ones, I'm guessing, not the... Of course, yeah. The classics. Princess and the Popper. <laughs> okay, well, Princess and the Popper is just a really, really good movie. <laughs> uh, I think we're getting sidetracked. <laughs> so what current what music is currently really speaking to you guys and resonating with you guys? I feel like sometime in middle school I somehow jumped off of the Taylor Swift train, but I mean I still love her. Actually her new music is not my favorite, but anyway, I shifted to being like, oh I'm so edgy, like I listen to alternative music. <laughs> and <laughs> every one of like, us is kind of like that in college yeah right but i still listen to indie alternative indie rock music you know what i mean For sure. and so that's i i think that it's interesting the way our music tastes develop over time speaking of taylor swift my eighth grade math teacher told us the song 15 was written about her son which isn't really much of a flex because it's basically about <laughs> bashing him but yeah that's wild yeah I also like indie like alternative music and it's not as much of a common thing 
down south. I mean, for sure, people at my high school listen to it, but you don't hear it as much on the radio unless it makes it into the top 50. Or if you have Sirius XM, which I do not. Location has a lot to do with music taste because you're just exposed to different music. When I was a senior in high school, my friend and I went to a Mitski concert, which is pretty, you know, indie, pretty sad. <laughs> but it was, I mean, I live, I'm from New Jersey. And so my friend and I took the train into New York City and we went to this place in Brooklyn. And it was just very nice. It, I, I imagine that that's not the sort of vibe that exists everywhere, obviously. If we're relating music to location, then it makes sense that my music taste is such a mess. Um, I've got my whole third culture kid thing going on here, so maybe it makes sense that my music taste is just everything. Like, I've got pop and indie and rock and and all the way down to, like, Vocaloid and Nightcore and all that anime soundtracks and music and, like, Bollywood music from the 1940s. Like, it's a it's all over the place. I think that's what's so great about having access to the internet and Spotify to all these different types of music now is that when I was a kid, I just knew about country music and pop music, didn't get exposed to anything else, never really liked it. And then like middle school, learned about 21 Pilots and bands like that didn't really come up in the local radio stations up just before that I just heard Blake Shelton, Carrie Underwood, all the country. I think it's just amazing how visceral music can be. Like you were saying when you hear it and you have those deep memories or specific emotions that it just taps. Like it's just sounds, but but there's just so much more to it. Yeah, for sure. I have this playlist that I listen to before fencing tournaments when I'm warming up and everything. And it's it's still alternative music, but it's the ones that are more like pump up energy, not as like low. And I don't know. It's really cool that we can get inspired or even saddened by music. There's two kinds of people. There's three kinds of people. There's the man who tells you not to worry about versus the man you once dressed up as for Halloween. In between insinuating your beliefs, you sing along to the score. There is a sense of some impending doom, though you interrupt this with other kinds of music to make it seem like your interests are more varied than they are. There's three kinds of people. There are laws and there are averages, cross-sections of psychiatry illustrated in this and other presentations in sheets like Paradise, as it says in the orchestration, or for more than three weeks, whichever happens sooner. That was a poem by Ajibide Khalil Hoffman, entitled Philodendron and Fruit. In it, he reflects upon a still-life photography piece by fellow artist and friend Daniel Gordon. Huffman began his artistic career as a poet and a writer before transitioning into installation art. The techniques used in his poetry still influence his work today. In this month's issue of The Observer, Sabah Lokandwala's article from The Glitch the Lightbox Reclaiming Black Media Through Artistry showcases the index exhibition at the Tufts University Art Gallery, featuring work from artists Ariella Tai and Ajibade Khalil Huffman, 
This exhibition discusses the landscape of Black media and the joys and trauma it encompasses, highlighting the artist's shared practice of remixing media to create a sense of dissonance in their art. I'm Dave Kikalra. I'm Jamie Guerra. And today we'll be speaking with one of the artists, Ajibade Khalil Huffman. Yeah, my name is uh, Ajibade Khalil Huffman. Um, I'm an artist. I make videos and uh, poems, photographs. And I think everything that I'm making has a kind of, it is a kind of text, um, but has a kind of underlying text, even if it's not, you know, super present in the video. Um, there's a video in the show itself called The Circle that I made basically all through at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, there's not really, aside from um, these kind of vocal, vocal samples that you hear on the soundtrack, there isn't, you know, um, subtitles or there isn't um, voiceovers, which are ways that I've had text, you know, manifest in these pieces before, like a poem, but it's in subtitles, right? Um, I've done that most times. So, it, it, you know, it didn't have that, but there's still this underlying kind of underpainting um, in the process of putting together the show back in August, you know, being on site, installing the main show right upstairs. Uh, we had this piece that I had never even seen in person. It was a light box that I made in 2017 uh, called Untitled Texas. And it's, it's the light box in index, right? Um, and originally that was going to go in the show and we tried it in different spots around the space and I didn't realize, and I said this because I didn't realize that once you turn this piece on in a room, it's like blinding in a way, right? Or it, it, it takes up a lot of space because it's just this raw fluorescent bulb, right? Because the piece is a bunch of maybe like six or seven cell phone images, um, news images, collaged in Photoshop to create this work that uh, records this incident that happened in 2017 in Texas where this uh, you know, teenager's birthday party was broken up by the cops. A noise complaint was filed. The cops came and drew guns on these kids. And um, you know, thankfully, you know, no one died. Um, but it's like, you know, it's just kids, right? Especially thinking as, you know, a black person, as a person of color, the ways in which these images are shared online, how we have to encounter them, how it, you know, reinforces the trauma of this, not just hearing about it, seeing yeah. it. So I wanted to make a piece kind of about that and where the the sort of the very active defiingness of defying the police, potentially defunding, abolishing the police, you know, kind of comes out of this gesture, right, of smashing um and all sort of ideas about um you know, uprising and breaking but it's like the very sort of act of breaking you know occludes this this another yet another image of this you know brutality against the black body so it's like you know, there's other presence kind of in in the room right that is is broken this this surface um, and originally i actually wanted to have the piece installed with a brick like on the floor below the piece so it like implied that this just happened you know what i'm saying um but it seemed just too dramatic in installing the tough show this just didn't work upstairs with everything else and we realized that the downstairs that there was going to be a show that would end in you know january or whatever dina and i the curator 
uh, our conversations was, you know, I asked her, well, what's going to be in this space? Can I do something with this piece in this space by itself and actually build out an entire room in relation to that? And kind of thinking about, you know, images about brutality. Um, and, you know, again, this is in August. So this is post right after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And how can we create a space that is not just that we have this work kind of among these other works, but where we can actually think about and engage with not just like police brutality, but rather the idea of images of police brutality and violence against, you know, black bodies. I mean, I've been, I think for a while, interested as someone, you know, again, working with appropriated found footage as someone who spends just so much time online watching films and television shows as someone who looks at advertising thinks about advertising it's almost it's become such a given i think that you know this is just especially now i mean not to make this about covid i hate anything that's like like in these unprecedented times you know i think we're just in this kind of world of engaging with streams and we're just constantly on screens or looking at screens or in some in-between on the way to another screen. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it just has to do with um, my interest in sort of just being, right? Um, just like the human experience. And I mean, I think a lot about like the first person versus the third person in literature, for example, like this kind of perspective and just walking around in the world you know, I think like a, a big touchstone for me that I never really talk about, it never comes up, but it's like being John Malkovich. And, you know, the work I'm thinking about now, um, it's it's via the lens of video games. So thinking about embodiment in that way and how like, you know, avatars and having playing a character and, um, you know, first person shooters versus third person games and, and is a second person game possible? Um, like all these things are connected and, and related, I think, just to this experience. Um, yeah, that's that's just been an interest for a while and, and how we sort of engage with these screens, how it changes our behavior, right? Um, thinking about the suspension of disbelief, et cetera. You know, um, I could go back even before that and just sort of interest in what does it mean to be a person in relation to fiction. I can't, I can really speak to Ariel's work, but the sort of tech, all the techniques that she's using. I think that we're both though interested in a kind, in like the materiality of video itself, right? So in gallery spaces, I mean, back to the white cube, you have these ultra HD videos, right? And you think about like when you go to Best Buy or something and how like those TVs are just so high def, even if you haven't seen an HD video in the gallery, just think about like that display at Best Buy, right? You know, it's just a sort of race for this kind of clarity and like hyper, hyper clarity. And um, related to what I was saying before about um, the kind of the pop cultural stand in, um, I think Ariella and I are both interested in, again, this materiality of videos. So the glitch, the, the sort of, um, the distortion, right, of using 
different quality, like not this ultra HD, not this ultra 4K, to kind of foreground um, various feelings. I mean, it depends on the piece, but in the same way that abstraction functions in painting to, to sort of foreground gesture and feeling via making you think about like how that brushstroke is painted rather than like, oh, this is an image of whatever, a sunrise, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of that um, at, at heart. Um, and that, you know, this sort of interest in the glitch, I think, is, is related to that and starts there. But that's something I've been interested in for a long time, just the sort of the sculptural qualities of video, you know, um, thinking about projection in space and you know, your, your body in relationship to it, where the projector, all these things are important, right? Related to what I was saying, just about experience, the human experience, you know, I want you to sort of be thinking about what this is doing to your body. Um, and, um, and then also these more, like, less concrete, I would say, ideas about, like, memory and, like, yeah, how that distortion becomes a obvious stand-in for, um, you know, the haze of memory, right? How that changes. Tufts has vowed that it will be an anti-racist institution and uphold the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion to the utmost extent. As Becca Rose and Molly Gould describe in their article for the Observer print issue, A Legacy of Oppression, Apartheid, Private Prisons, and Student Movements for Divestment, organizers and activists at Tufts have pushed the institution to put actions behind their words launching and participating in student political campaigns, civil disobedience, and bureaucratic negotiation to make critical change. The target of much of this organizing is the endowment, one of the university's largest sources of power. An endowment is an aggregation of assets, composed of donations to the university, that the university invests to generate money. It is a huge source of Tufts' economic and social power, making it a consistent target for student activism for decades. Students are pressuring Tufts to use their nearly $2 billion fund to adopt progressive policies and divest from holdings that perpetuate systems of oppression, even as the university actively resists the demands of its student body and tries, as Becca Rose and Molly Gould describe in their article, to keep institutional finances beyond student comprehension or influence. They want to keep us in the dark, and they want to keep us silent. My name is Emma Downs, and in this segment, we will be discussing more about the fight for anti-racist practices and endowment divestment at Tufts. Today, you'll be hearing conversations from two current students and an alumni about their experiences and frustrations with organizing on campus and how they believe it can grow and flourish. I'm Layla, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a junior studying international relations and environmental studies. Currently, I'm most involved with Students for Justice in Palestine, but throughout my years at Tufts, I've been involved with Tufts Climate Action, Tufts Labor Coalition, and <laughs> Tufts for a Racially Equitable Endowment. My name is Chiamaka, but I go by Chia. I am a sophomore at Tufts, I am studying community health and biology, and 
I'm involved with a couple different clubs on campus. So there was a new organization that just got started. Um, it's a maternal health club. So it's basically um, called Maternal um, and Advocacy Research in Community Health. I'm also involved with the Tufts um, for Racially Equitable um, Endowment with Sunrise and Project Sherwood. My name is Amira El Subay. I use she, her pronouns. I graduated from Tufts in 2019, majoring in international relations. When I was organizing at Tufts, I did most of my organizing work with Tufts Students for Justice in Palestine and also worked with some other Arab students to start the Tufts Arab Students Association and Tough Student Action, which was focused mostly on uh, organizing against tuition hikes and yeah, fighting for more resources for low-income students, the very few of us that existed at a, an elite private institution like Tufts. When asked about the activism she had done at Tufts, Amira felt it was important to underscore the distinction between activism and organizing. I wouldn't define myself as an activist or a student activist. I think I've learned a lot from organizers like Mariam Kaba and other black feminists who I think have really switched my framing there. And I think the reason I don't say I'm an activist, or one of the key differences I think between an activist and an organizer is that an activist can very often not be accountable to anyone, to a movement or to uh, a community, whereas I think an organ that's at the root of what being an organizer means because you have to organize people, right? As opposed to if you're an activist, that could mean like signing a petition, writing a letter, etc. But organizing, I think, really requires a deep relationship to community and, yeah, that accountability piece, too. Among the several organizing groups that Layla and Chia are involved in is TREE, or Tufts for a Racially Equitable Endowment, which is a relatively new organization pushing for Tufts to divest from private prisons. The mission statement is that we're just a student-led organization that works in ensuring that Tufts has transparency um, with their endowment and also ensuring that the students on the Tufts campus are aware of the prison industrial complex, what it is and how it, interplay, it interplays and leads to oppression and also racism. We asked them to tell us more about the mission of TREE and their relationship with Tufts. First off, how would they define the endowment and what is its purpose? Tufts basically, they have like this huge amount of money, right? And they basically own the money and they get donations from different people who support the school. And with this money, they're able to invest it or put it into different things that they want to kind of improve the institution. So endowment is just the money that they own. As students, we're basically able to have them put the money into something that could better society. Our university has over $1,980,000,000 in its endowment. Tufts generates nine-figure annual profits off of their endowment by investing it in various holdings. Most of this profit is added back into the endowment itself, then invested again to generate even more money. It's rarely used for operating costs. The endowment only supplements 20% of the university's total operating costs. 
So then, what is Tufts valuing and putting their money behind? One of the areas in which Tufts has invested is the private prison industry. Tufts has vowed to be an anti-racist institution. However, can they truly claim to uphold this promise while they continue to invest money in an industry that profits off the systemic incarceration of marginalized groups? Layla and Chia and the organizers in Tree are calling on Tufts to divest from private prisons and withdraw their monetary support for the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration. Often the term divestment is used when talking about anti-racism and the endowment. We asked Layla and Chia about what divestment means and why is it important at Tufts. Okay, so basically divestment is just the act of not supporting something that you're invested in. So for example, if I'm invested in like Amazon, if I want to divest from Amazon, I can just pull the money out. The endowment is tough because it's read into a bunch of commingled funds. And that means that there's like all these different portfolios and a little bit of everything all mixed together. And it makes it harder to specifically eliminate the most problematic parts, whether related to environmental injustice or organizations profiting from the Israeli occupation. I think it's also really important to understand that Tufts divesting from private prisons or um, fossil fuels is huge because Tufts is literally moving that money. What is arguably even more impactful is the symbolicness of it as Tufts is one university in our whole nation with lots of other wealthy colleges like Harvard and the movement of other endowments. It's part of a much larger system divesting is just one way to use our position as tough students to um, move towards justice. So I do see divestment as a huge part of positive work Tufts can do, but I also think it must be contextualized in other histories of Tufts founding as an institution like on stolen land and Tuff profiting from like 10 Hills Plantation, which was one of the only like slave owning plantations in Massachusetts. In terms of improving the endowment, I do think that Tufts does have a long way to go, but I think it's like one step at a time. And I think it's because of students who like are always actively pursuing things like this, even when they shut it down, they try again and try again. So it's just a matter of time before they're like, okay, we're just going to adhere to your commands. I was going to point out that something really amazing that I thought that happened with Tree is that uh, we got the TCU approval. So basically we're starting off the RIAD process. And a lot of people don't know what that is, but basically it's like advisory, it's like an advisory committee in a sense. And it kind of shows us how to kind of like reinvest the money that we're taking over, like we're trying to get them to um, divest. Like TREE, the Tufts organization SJP, or Students for Justice in Palestine, has called upon the university to divest in certain assets in the name of anti-racism and put their money towards better causes. While Tree asked Tufts to divest from prisons, SJP has a variety of different campaigns, including one to push Tufts to divest from Israeli apartheid. Students for Justice in Palestine was really a way into activism and organizing at Tufts for me. And one of the most powerful parts of our work is our coalition building and being able to connect uh, Palestinian liberation to a range of different um, causes and even more like culturally based clubs on campus, which is really cool. And being part of 
SJP, there's three main pillars of it to follow the calls from Palestinian civil society and specifically for the BDS movement, which is boycott, divest, sanction. Horizontal leadership is a really important part of it, along with just having like the overall mission be towards Palestinian liberation. One of the ways that SJP fights for Palestinian liberation is through various reformation campaigns. For Amira, a huge chunk of her organizing work was around passing a resolution in Tufts student government that asked the university to divest from companies complicit in Palestinian human rights violations. I think every year we we kind of took on different campaigns, but uh, the main focus is while I was there were working on our divestment resolution, which passed the Senate in, I forget what year, maybe 2017. So that was really a longer process that started far before actually passing the resolution. Um, And that's where I think I gained a lot of skills around political education and coalition building and relationship building too. And then after we passed the divestment resolution, shortly after that was when we learned about Tufts former chief of police, Kevin McGuire, going on a quote-unquote counterterrorism training trip in Israel. Shortly after that news broke is when we launched our deadly exchange campaign, which I think, again, was really building off of the relationships that we had built with other organizing groups on campus and different issue areas as well in terms of, yeah, making a campaign that was internationalist and was really rooted in staying consistent with our values from here in Somerville to Palestine and knowing that the things that happen on our campus every day are not isolated. We don't exist in a bubble. Tufts as an institution with a lot of money is a part of uh, white supremacist systems in a lot of ways. And I think for us, that's why we focused on divestment because that felt like a, a really tangible and powerful way that students throughout history have used to, to organize has been, you know, a divestment fight. And I think the deadly exchange fight uh, was similar in figuring out what we could do, what we had the power to organize around as students, as part of an institution that would have an impact on the everyday lives of black and brown students on our campus and would contribute to a international movement for Palestinian liberation and to do our part in dismantling the global military industrial complex. Tufts has actively attempted to bureaucratize and impede student organizing. While they claim to be open to student input, Their process for registering complaints is intricate and tedious, and they require students to ask for their approval before enacting larger protests or sit-ins. Previous presidents of Tufts have even attended national conferences that teach universities how to suppress student political action campaigns through methods like controlling protests, disciplining demonstrators, and surveilling student leadership. Tufts falls behind in national divestment movements. During the anti-apartheid movement, in the face of massive student condemnation, Tufts defended their choice to invest in pro-apartheid corporations. 
and they only divested after 150 other universities first made the call. The university wants to maintain its power and the status quo while controlling its investments without accountability, and to do so, they will suppress student voices. This is a massive area of frustration for our organizers. I just feel like there's a lot of politics involved with trying to enact change, and you think you're getting there, and then before you know it, someone is like, you can't do that because it goes against X, Y, and Z. So it's just difficult to like navigate that system and try to get the higher power, the higher authority, aka the school, to understand what we're trying to do. So I think it's just, that's the most frustrating part for me, is just getting through administration and trying to make them understand. Yeah, definitely just echoing all of Chia's points. I also think remembering who the administration is really trying to serve, and oftentimes it's not the students, and particularly not the like students of color or organizers, and I think we can see that like with all the I don't know, working groups and Tufts claiming to be anti-racist and then just like ignoring student demands on campus fully. Oftentimes the work falls on like the identity center, like the first center when everything shut down with the pandemic for, yeah, just student organizers. And I also just want to emphasize how Tufts only makes moves when it's convenient. I mean, there is a huge amount of work from TCA that went into getting Tufts to do the partial divestment, but a huge part of it is to like public opinion has changed and now Tufts use it as convenient. And then last part I just want to emphasize is the discrepancy in treatment of SJP and other groups on campus. For example, when SJP had successfully passed the BDS resolution, which is a culmination of years of work, Tufts immediately condemned it and sent out a huge statement. And then when Tree passed the resolution, which is a huge victory, like it just passed quietly and received no backlash. Very similar dynamic happened back in 2017, unsurprisingly, after we Past our uh, resolution through the student government, the university pretty immediately sent out a email to all students and I'm pretty sure to other stakeholders as well, like parents, guardians, etc., explicitly announcing their opposition to this student government vote, which, you know, the Tufts University administration doesn't often take the time to respond to what the Tufts Senate does. So it was very clear to us how the institution has been so targeted in suppressing student organizing that's actually rooted in systemic changes to the institution. And I think that was very clear yet again in the administration's response to the referendum, the student body-wide referendum, which I think, again, was, was part of, that was part of the escalation plan for us at SJP, was that, okay, we passed something through the student government, the administration <laughs> says it's not valid, now we're going to take it to the whole student body. And um, even when the majority of students are in favor of divestment and of, yeah, building an endowment that actually reflects the values that Tufts says (laughs) that it upholds, yet again, the administration comes out against student organizers. So, yeah, unfortunately, not surprising. I think that's part of Tufts' legacy, and I think that's why it's really important for student organizers to to know that history and to be in relationship with the people who came before us because I think Tufts often portrays this image that the student body is very active and cares about social issues 
and is at the forefront of social justice fights. And I think the reality is that if you're a student organizer involved in so many social justice issues, you've likely been actively silenced and suppressed by the administration. And I think that dates back so many decades, back when Tufts students were fighting to divest from South African apartheid, back when Black students were fighting against the fact that Black students only represented 3% of the student body. All the issues that I think students are fighting for now are not new. And there's a long legacy of black and brown students on Tufts campus fighting against racism by the Tufts police force, fighting against harmful endowment policies, and the administration's response, I think, has been quite similar over the years. While it's frustrating how Tufts actively resists campaigns from its students while taking credit for its progressive platform and anti-racist work, this does not deter organizers. Tufts students have invested countless hours into mobilizing and educating peers, determined to enact any type of meaningful change despite Tufts' active resistance. Still, A result of the complex nature of this organizing work, there are times when problems and frustrations arise internally. So much of our organizing work is an experiment. Um, (laughs) That doesn't mean we shouldn't be grounded in history and know the people who came before us, but it also means that like, we're trying to build a world that doesn't exist right now, and that means we are going to make mistakes. That means we're going to have to experiment and try things out and they might fail. And I think that in those moments of failure is when we're pushed most to like grow and stay in line with our values, right? And I think something that continues to show up in a lot of organizing spaces that I think can be frustrating and demoralizing is when the forces of white supremacy that we're fighting against actually show up internally within organizing spaces. I think, for example, that can look like white supremacy and capitalism create this false sense of urgency that we, that can lead to groups making very rapid decisions that aren't fully thought out or we haven't thought about how it's consistent with our values. I think another way it shows up is uh, how in so many organizing spaces, there continue to be problems of sexual violence and assault that are ignored. And I think that ASAP and other survivors on college campuses have been fighting again for decades to get us to think about the question of, you know, it's not if, there is an instance of, of, of sexual violence or abuse. It's when and how are we as a group prepared to respond and support survivors. I don't think any of those frustrations are unique to organizing at Tufts. I think they really show up in a lot of organizing spaces, both for students and for people who aren't in an academic institution. And I think it's really on us to be talking pretty openly about those frustrations and failures so that we can actually rethink and transform how we're responding to harm.
To combat obstacles from the university and within the organizations themselves, students have found their own ways to promote change, including structuring organizations so there is no hierarchy and enacting practices that improve the process of turnover between graduating leaders and new members. I think that's so common to use as a strategy from the administration. Like they're like, oh, we just hold out until these people or this group leaders graduate. I hate them for it, but it's something I've been noticing is each year the freshmen get more and more radical. Each year people come like more ready to organize. And I think that makes me really hopeful. Something else I wanna bring up is institutional knowledge and as activists and students on campus, how important it is to pass down and like keep track of the record and everything. And also the administration is so quick to turn things and like take things like now you can see in the CC, the anti-apartheid protests, like there's pictures and documentation. Bro, the administration tried so long to shut it down. The test was one of the last places to divest from apartheid. Check out the Observer's article, literally. But it's so important to remember and keep track of the histories and events that happen as organizers because Tufts is so quick to either erase them or exploit them. To make sure these new organizers can advance their campaigns and maintain consistent pressure on the university, Leila, Chia, and Amira see the value and strength in horizontal leadership and building genuine community within organizing spaces. One of the most important parts of activism work is making sure you're not recreating the oppressive systems that you're working against. So by oppressive systems, I'm thinking about like racism and sexism and anti-LGBTQ-like sentiments. So horizontal leadership means that people are taking on the labor that they're able to and like have the skills for and like stepping up and stepping down. And it also means that you're being conscious about both the capacity you have, but based on like your positionality and identity, like what work you're doing as well. So just like everyone puts their head together and we figure out how to solve an issue. It's really important to not only say that we're trying to create like horizontal leadership and yeah, like not have a uh, hierarchical structures in our organizing work. But I think beyond saying that there's a lot of uninteresting structure creation that has to happen to make that true. And I think the reason it has to be structured is also similar to what I was mentioning earlier about how white supremacy can seep into our organizing spaces. And I think the way that can look is women of color in organizing spaces continuing to carry most of the labor. Yeah, that's why I think a lot of organizing groups, including Tufts SJP, worked really hard to not replicate that white supremacist norm and to lean on like having a lot of structure in our group to spread labor equitably, to encourage new people to take on leadership roles, and I think a big part of that is also like being in deep relationship with one another. I think that continues to this day that like when I was in Tufts SJP, we all really knew each other. It wasn't that the first time, the only time we were seeing each other was in our weekly meetings. We would have meals together. We would flyer together. We would attend events together. We would study together. And I think that's one, how we actually all learned so much from each other through organizing and how you know that's how we were able to see like oh you're you like how is your capacity doing right now it seems like you're working a lot on sjp stuff like how can i take things off of your plate and i think that deep relationship was really important to even 
be honest about that and say like, I can't do all of this right now and I really need help. And other people knowing and loving you and wanting to find ways to to support. And I think in a recent inspiring moment that I think spoke to that dynamic in Tufts SJP specifically was before the referendum, a few organizers in Tufts SJP reached out to maybe three or four alumni and said like, hey, you know, we're about to do this referendum. It's a lot. Would love to like chat and hear your insights or like advice or ideas and reactions to like what we're organizing right now. And within three days, over 15 Tufts SJP alumni showed up to talk with current Tufts SJP organizers. And I think Tufts SJP has such deep relationship beyond class years. Like I'm still in contact with many Tufts SJP organizers and I think and hope that they know that I'm someone that they can lean on for support and so many other alumni too. So I think that's really important to the turnover is like staying in deep relationship, uh, creating structures that will be able to transcend like the people graduating. These deep relationships and communities bring our students at Tufts hope for the future and for the growth of their movements. It's just really important to be part of community spaces and Tufts is lucky to have so many that exist and... I have been really inspired to see how those organizing groups have moved beyond, I think, like a superficial sense of solidarity and have been building like really deep accountability relationships and like learning communities too, that we all know that we aren't experts on every issue, but we are experts on our own lived experiences and I think there's so many opportunities to learn from our peers. Definitely emphasizing that organizing is for everyone and it's a great place to like meet new people and build community, especially around people who share similar values and hopes and visions for the future. It's a great place to learn if you feel like you don't know that much about the prison industrial complex or climate change or Palestine, come learn. We're so willing to learn with you too. And I think it's a process for everyone. SJP is getting really hyped for Israel Apartheid Week in the beginning of April. So look out for that. We're active on social media. Check us out. TCA is popping. I don't, <laughs> I feel like just staying on, on up to date on social media is a great way. Or reach out to me. And also, Tree, we're looking for new members and we're welcoming for new members. And we're planning a lot of talks with different professors. And a lot of speakers are coming in to speak about the experience in the prison industrial complex. Feel free to reach out anytime. Thank you for tuning in to the Observer News segment. If you would like to get involved in TREE or SJP or learn more about the work they're doing, you can find TREE on Instagram at TREE Tufts and SJP at SJP Tufts. Go out, gather knowledge, and keep challenging institutions that uphold injustice. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our first segment on music and memory was written and produced by Hannah Bregman, Suhasini Mehra, and Alexis Inderley. The segment on activism and the endowment 
was written and produced by Emma Downs and Reina Matsumoto. The segment on the Index Art Gallery was written and produced by Jamie Guerra and Dave Kikalra. The Observer Podcast is executive produced by Florence Almeida and Sophia Pertel.